Welcome to Making Sense of MarTech, in a regular set of conversations with some of the most interesting people in marketing, tech, and advertising. My name's Juan Mendoza. I write the MarTech Weekly Newsletter. It's a weekly email, and it covers the most important shifts in marketing technology. Today, I'm joined by two guests, both in their own right, leaders in experimentation. First, we have David Mannheim. He's the Global VP of Conversion Rate Optimization with Brain Labs. And he's the former founder of leading optimization firm, User Conversion. And we also have Oliver Palmer. Now, he's a senior CRO consultant. He's a prolific author. He's been working in the optimization experimentation space for a very long time. And he's worked in a number of high-profile brands across Asia Pacific. So why are these two gentlemen on the call today and why are we talking about experimentation? Well, across the industry, the past few years have seen a major shift in how people think about the place of optimization in their businesses. A lot of people are questioning the validity of associating testing with revenue outcomes and KPIs. And there's a scientific promise of experimentation that a lot of companies just don't seem to grasp. So over the past few months, the MarTech Weeklies have featured a number of articles from both David and Oliver talking about this idea of experimentation and putting it under the microscope. We look into, into things like experimentation and financial gain, the crisis of optimization, its attachment from its scientific roots and methodologies. And so both of these guys have been talking about this, but they live in different parts of the world and there's different regions and different uh, types of work, of course, but we're talking about the same thing. And so it's a little bit of a global conversation about the state of experimentation and why we should rethink it. And so I give you David and Oliver. It's nice of you. Thank you very much. I, I don't know what to say because you've, you've pretty much said it all. I think we could probably end the podcast there. So, I, yeah, I, I guess I, I'm David. You've gone through my creds. But, yeah, I, I recently sold user conversion to Brain Labs, hence my position at Brain Labs, the same week that I had a baby. So, I've had Rats. a very busy year. Double sold, sold, sold one baby, made another. Yeah, you, you know it. That's uh, exactly how it goes. Just swap one in, one out. Yeah, so yeah, I, I've been running, owning user conversion for six years. I started it on the premise of, I feel as though CRO is becoming more and more diversified into other areas. You know, it's, it's a little bit like how SEO was five years ago, prior to uh, 2015, which is when I started, where you, you didn't just have an SEO manager anymore. You had a technical, a keyword, a content, you know, it became more and more diversified. And I saw CRO go in the same direction. So the, the whole proposition there was, well, you CRO, you don't have an individual manager. You have a UX researcher, you have a, a designer, a UX designer, an engineer, you have a, an analyst, et cetera, et cetera. And that seemed to work out pretty well. They've got some really nice juicy brands, Sports Direct, Brewdog, probably one of my favorites, um, Boots, uh, Travis Perkins, Avon, yada, yada mostly e-commerce and well, here I am today, being honest. Um, what about you, Ollie? You've been, you've been over this side of the pond. How do you think the, the Aussie and the UK market differ in terms of CRO too much? Is there more maturity over here? Yeah. Uh, hey Juan, thanks for uh, having me on. Yeah, I don't know. I think that's, that's the thing that everyone always says. I don't know if that is quite the case. Perhaps it is. I don't know. One thing I have noticed though is it's funny you mentioned you mentioned CRO trailing behind SEO, and that's something I've 
always sort of noticed, but in a slightly different way. And as much as in the early days of, in my early days of CRO, which is probably a bit about 10 years ago now, it felt like it was probably five years behind SEO in as much it was, as it was the absolute worst shysters, you know, in the world were sort of attracted to it as a business in, in the way that, I don't know if that was the case globally, but certainly in Australia back then, it was just like the, the grossest, most, you know, untrustworthy people would sort of go into, into SEO and sort of do, you know, smile and dial, uh, type outreach and build up these big SEO empires that sort of didn't actually get results. And I always sort of felt like for a time, that's where there was a lot of that stuff happening in CRO as well, but then it sort of dissipated as we sort of get to where we are now. Well, that's, that's really interesting, Oliver, in that it is a funny, in the way it trails SEO, it seems to be a little bit more honest because there is a bit more scientific rigor behind the work. And when you find a good CRO agency, they are pretty rigorous around, you know, what the experience is going to look like, what kind of results it's going to drive. But I'd love to get a view both uh, from Oliver and David yourself on what initially inspired you going into experimentation? Did you work in digital beforehand and then sort of got into it? Or did you read something and then you decided, yep, I'm going to get into this? What was that initial thing that got you into CRO and experimentation? Well, I had, uh, you know, I'd, I'd been kicking around in e-commerce for years and years sort of doing, I worked at Amazon in the UK for a little while doing like in probably about 2006, doing like site merchandising and I did sort of e-commerce product management for different brands. And I always sort of, it's funny looking at it in retrospect, it's just like, I, I love data and I love truth. And so if there was an opportunity to like make a point with data, then I want to do that, you know, and it's, it's sort of, and it's come in over the last sort of eight months or something, I've been working on, well, extending my house and working with an architect and a builder and doing all that sort of stuff and really went down this super data driven path of doing that, of building things to a, to a passive house standard. Are you guys familiar with passive house at all? Yeah. And one of my good friends built a passive house. It's uh, phenomenal. The technology it's, it's amazing. I mean, it's, it's super interesting in as much as it's, it's, I mean, the backstory for people that aren't familiar with it is in the, I think in the nineties, there's a, a German physicist called Wolfgang Feist and he was building a house for himself and he was a physicist. So, you know, he sort of, you know, he got the science and he wanted to build a super efficient house. So he ended up building a, a spreadsheet and in fact, it's still a spreadsheet that has all the sort of building science in it and you punch in all of the numbers about all of the, the specifications of all the materials that you use in the house. And the idea is that to be passive house, you've got to hit below a certain figure for the amount of energy required to heat and cool the house across a year. And so going down that path, it just sort of made it, it made it really clear to me. It was like when having conversations with architects and builders and stuff, and, and I think so often they're used to dealing with opinion. I was like, I don't care about your opinion. Like, let's just find the facts. I want to do this in a really, really data-driven way. And that, that's sort of, you know, that realization that this applies to me outside of work and that I, I guess I feel like I'm a truth seeker, you know? So there's perhaps something just sort of latent within me that I latched onto once I discovered CRO as a discipline. Wow. Really incredibly analytical route. Um, or I would almost say completely the opposite to all of them. Finished university. I remember getting a graduate job and the, the only thing I ever wanted to do was 
was being advertised and, you know, Mad Men, Don Draper, creating these awesome ads that I had, I had no idea how to create. And I went to an advertising agency and after my three month grad scheme thing, they said, you know what? You're quite geeky. I think, I think you'll be really good in digital. <laughs> to which I said, no, I don't want to be pigeonholed in digital. <laughs> and this, this was in, uh, gone, I don't know, 13 years ago. I don't want to be pigeonholed in digital. Anyway, I went into digital and I took your very classic route of um, funneling down into something that I found genuinely fascinating. So I started off as a digital account manager. I then got more and more involved in client services. And then indeed into UX, particularly research, less so design. I did like some human factors international courses, which I found fascinating. From there, I stemmed into CRO, to just basically the, the proposition of trying to improve products with rigor and insight behind you. And interestingly, at the beginning of this, you said I'm a leader in experimentation. I actually disagree. I, I don't think I am. I, I certainly understand the concepts. Um, my skill sets are less analytical and more, I would actually say creative, you know, they probably stem from the Don Draper aspirational moments. So whilst I don't think, you know, I'm totally fascinated by the concepts of experimentation and what it could do and how it can validate and the conversations between stakeholders and how you could persuade opinion and create and change culture and mold, mold product, but the individual disciplines within I wouldn't say I'm, I'm anywhere near a stronger sale or, you know, many others within this world. So I'm much more focused on optimization, a bit of a broader remit. Well, there we go. We've got the left side of the hemisphere. We've got the right side of the hemisphere. You know, it's a mm. perfect pairing. I couldn't yeah. ask for much more. If I'm the left side, this is, we're, we're, we're weak. We're weak. <laughs> I can't be the left side, guys. So maybe I can be the left all about that. You're the left. Yeah. I'll fall on my own sword. That's okay. Um, but I guess before we get into this conversation uh, proper, we did have a bit of a backstory. Now, you guys have been writing a lot and it's been awesome to see. And you guys have been commenting on the experimentation optimization space quite a bit. But I didn't know this until we jumped onto a call and started discussing this podcast that you guys have actually been working together. Now, I thought you guys would be working separately, had a view, uh, two different viewpoints that were coming together, but you guys have actually been fleshing out a lot of the topics that you've been working on. And so would you like to give me a bit of a backstory? How have you guys been working together, writing, thinking about experimentation? I'd love to hear that. Well, I mean, the, the, I suppose the backstory as it is, is, is that I published a, a blog post a couple of months ago now that I'd been thinking about for a long time. It's called the crisis of optimization and the I basically draw a line through the reproduction crisis in science and the fact that, you know, anyone that's been paying attention to the world of academic science is aware that essentially there's been a lot of bullshit called on the validity of science and the, I suppose the, the reasons why bad science is perpetuated and the sort of incentives that exist to perpetuate bad science in place of, you know, good, solid research. And so, yeah, I wrote a blog post, which sort of drew a line between that and the incentives that exist in, in optimization, as we know it, in sort of corporate AB testing and, you know, looking at the, the incentives that exist there for, for, um, bad science as it were, which I think leads to a lot of dodgy testing. And I was pretty nervous about essentially calling bullshit on a whole industry that I've 
you know, worked in for, for many, many years. So I sought out a number of people who I respected in the space just to get them to check my thinking. And, um, and David was among them. So that's, that's sort of how we got chatting. Yeah. And less so working together and more so me, um, reviewing an article that was incredibly well-written. Oliver is a fantastic storyteller. I really recommend you read some of his articles. I go to him for a lot of advice. Um, and we, we jumped on the call thereafter and I don't know, a lot of, a lot of what Oliver was saying really resonated with me personally, my experiences. I mean, look, it, it, if I'm honest, I don't think I've ever talked to this Oliver. It probably gave me the confidence to create those series of articles about the revenue, uh, revenue attribution within experimentation. And obviously I've had them in my back pocket for three years and probably been too fearful to talk about them. Um, I know when we spoke, you said, I actually did this research a couple of years ago, but I never did anything with it. Yeah. And that's phenomenal. And I'd like to unpack that a little bit. I think Oliver, you coined it quite well in that article, that experimentation has become this thing in most companies, teams, where it's under this banner of results or, or, or else. So it's a scientific practice, but it's so tied to commercial outcomes that it's almost being disfigured or it's become this thing that perhaps it really shouldn't be. And that's a problem in the industry. And I'd love to get a view. How do you think we've arrived at this point around experimentation becoming this really commercial thing, this thing that's driven a lot by revenue and KPIs, as opposed to a scientific endeavor where we're trying to learn and understand our customers? What are the things that have led us to this point? That's actually caused you guys to write and research a lot about it as well. Questions there, aren't there? Uh, <laughs> I guess from my perspective, how it's come about, I mean, what led me personally to create this was uh, a couple of years ago when I was, when I was running user conversion, we had the same clients asking us the same questions over and over again, which is how much revenue is this worth? And you know, how can we actually be this revenue? What is, this, what is this worth? What is this worth? Well, I totally understood the need for it. Trying to actually attribute something, it almost took us so long to get even near a level, a, a level of accuracy that was deemed as vaguely acceptable, that it, it wasn't worth presenting a figure. And then it kind of fell on deaf ears, but very curious as to why people were asking the same damn question over and over again. This isn't the purpose of why we're doing what we're doing. Do you understand the purpose of, of experimentation? I, it led me personally to try and objectify this. So I spoke to 30, 30 or so different people from around the world, you know, Andre, Craig, Tim, Pep, you know, the, 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 the usuals, I guess the usual suspects, the old guards. And the conclusion that I came to was, oh, Everyone has this problem. <laughs> it's not just me. People deal with it in different ways. So personally, that's, that's why I wanted to fly this flag. But in terms of where it's come from, sorry, I'm going to blame Optimizely. And it's, it's, not, it's not really their fault. Uh, you know, they, they've created an incredible product and just marked it very well. And by marked it very well, what I mean by that is they made it accessible. And by making it accessible, they have to simplify quite a complex methodology. So they create case studies, you know, this change gave this increase, this change gave that increase. And therefore, as a SaaS company, you know, by making it more accessible, by oversimplifying it, they've perhaps inadvertently almost twisted the power of this methodology for commercial gain. That's a very cynical point of view, but let's be honest, in order to promote a product or a service, it needs a commercial gain, one indeed that's fairly new. 
And I, I think that uh, has created a, a rabbit hole, a golden path that everybody's trodden down, personally. What I, I mean, I think David, David hones in on something really important there with Optimizely and, you know, the, the narrative of, you know, there's that famous post, like how Obama raised $60 million by running a simple experiment. Like yeah. that's, it's so addictive it's an idea you can make. Yeah. Run a simple experiment, get 60 million bucks. Like mm -hmm. that's great. And you know, that's, it's, it's such a good piece. And that sort of, that, that fed into, there was a Wired article that came a few, few years later, which tells the story of, um, of Dan Soroka and the, the, you know, democratic campaign and how they used AB testing. And I've often used that. I've often sent that to, to new clients or, or new members. So new team members that join my clients that haven't sort of, that aren't familiar with AB testing, sort of post them that article to give them a bit of context. But I do think it predates it. It doesn't exist anymore, but I, I imagine you guys are both familiar with witchtest1.com. Mm. Um, you know, that was, that was long before, before Optimizely got going in sort of 2010, this idea that you would have two different things and you click on one and guess which, guess which treatment with whatever button color or size or headline or whatever generated X amount of revenue. But I actually think more than that, I feel like it's a, it's just a legacy of the sales process whether that is sales from a vendor like Optimizely and to a certain extent that, you know, shapes a lot of the, a lot of the nature of conversation within the industry, but also internal sales. If you're in a business and you're trying to get backing to set up an optimization program, well, you, you're going to need something a bit more concrete than it's going to help us learn about our customers. You know, you mm. peg it to the language of business and the language of business is money. Yeah. You know, it's, um, it's so interesting. And uh, I remember my first CRO job, we were redoing our landing page, uh, for our own website. It was an agency and, uh, we wanted to put this picture up and I kind of strongly disagree. We did it of this like stressed out e-commerce manager, you know, somebody like at their keyboard, they're crying or, you know, they're, they're freaking out. Right. And the headline was like, um, CRO can help you reach your KPIs. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, that's a bit of an illustration, a bit of a parable for like how we've associated experimentation with revenue outcomes so clearly, but I wouldn't say it's just optimizely. I would say across the market landscape, it's almost every company, right? If you're looking at marketing automation or you're looking at personalization, even CDPs and customer data platforms, all of these different software um, vendors, they're very much focused on closing deals. And so when you go to the webinar, you go to the event or you listen to a pitch, like, what are you going to hear? Well, look, look at the results we generated for this other business. Look at the results that we generated over here for a similar category company as yourself. And so there is a real sales tactic that I think, and I agree that it is driven by software businesses because of the incentive to sell, as opposed to the incentive to educate and inform. Um, but it does mean that we have to kind of unwind that narrative a bit because um, what I do see across, you go to any country and where they're selling marketing technologies is that they buy the tech, it sits on a shelf or it gets used and it does get used properly. And then the results don't materialize. And that is just so common. The amount of people I talk to in my own practice, clients, heads of, uh, all of them are, are talking about, yeah, we're just not getting value out of these products, out of these tools that we're buying to improve our customer experience, to meet our goals and meet these promises. And so 
how do you think we could unwind this narrative a bit? What would you do? Let's say sitting down and, you know, a new customer or client, they're talking about the promises that a tech company has given them. How would you unwind that narrative? What would you pick apart in it? Can I just say that like, I, I, I almost don't think it's a problem to, to, you know, I think the reason why we are optimizing is to make money. You know, it might not be something that we can always directly measure. A lot of our optimization might be focused on creating a better experience for, you know, customers or something a little bit more intangible, but ultimately any optimization, like any activity within business in the private sector should be focused on, on generating profitability. It might not be something that you are able to always able to directly influence but all of your activities can, and I think should be tied toward that end goal. That's, that's what you're in business for. But I think it's a matter of doing it in a way that is, is realistic. I don't know, I don't know so much. I think, see, for me that it's over indexed towards revenue is, is the problem. It's not that I disagree with you per se, but I think that if you, if you were to judge every decision that you make based on pure revenue, over-indexing it and prioritize it on nothing but revenue, I think your decision-making would be, would be incredibly flawed. From, from running a shop, you know, what do you put in the shop front window? Uh, is, it, is it a bunch of sale banners or is it something to entice, entice customers in, you know, make it an aspirational look and feel, for example? Uh, I feel, for me, experimentation is, is such a beautiful methodology, let's be honest. It has so many benefits that when it's purely focused on revenue and over-indexed towards revenue, it loses its original purpose. That's, that's my opinion. I think though, David, I'm not saying um, purely focus on revenue, but I'm saying all of the other goals that you're focusing on, whether it is creating a better customer experience or you know whatever it is, you're doing those not because it gives you a warm and fuzzy feeling. You're doing those because uh, those things because over the long term, it is going to make you more money, you know, and even that example you cited just there of whether you've got sale banners or whether you're creating something that's more of an upmarket aspirational type experience, uh, as though the latter is more noble, you know, the latter is, is where there's more money. You're doing that because you've got your eye on the long game and you think you'll be able to sell your products for a premium if you take that approach rather than something that is short-termist. In that example though, surely would the shop manager request what is the level of attribution from putting those uh, models <laughs> up, you know, in, in this pink dress versus this purple dress or the, versus the sale banners. And let's say the sale banners did win, you know, if we take this binary approach of won, won versus lost, does that mean that therefore we should make our decision based, based on the fact that the sale banners should go in the shop front window? I think what we're talking about here is, is a short-term view versus a long-term view. Yeah. One of the things that, for instance, I know popularly people really hate on A-B testing. There's a lot of people I see on Twitter who don't really know anything about A-B testing, but who really hate on it and think it's, um, yeah, and this is something I know you, you've touched on in your writing as well, David, around the way that sort of A-B testing can help or hinder creativity. But there is a popular idea that suggests, oh, you can't A-B test your way to Shakespeare. And I think part of what um, fuels those points of view 
is some very short-term focused A-B testing. And to a certain extent, I feel like I'm largely oblivious to it. But I know, for instance, on, on Twitter, again, Twitter has this thing whereby it always wants me to turn on in-app notifications. And I will never have in-app no notifications turned on on my phone on Twitter. But it tells me I've got a notification on Twitter and I open it up. And when I open it, I'm not at mentioned or nothing's happened. It's just literally a thing saying, please turn on notifications on Twitter. And then I try to stop it and it says, my only option is show this less frequently. And it's like, come on, that probably worked really well in an A-B test, doing something really annoying like that. Mm. It's, it's, it's really greatly influenced this one particular metric that you were focusing on in the scope of your test but it really pisses me off and in the long term has a you know it degrades my view on twitter as a platform and uh, that's outside of the scope of what they are able to measure so i think it's always oh, it's always important to kind of have that have a view on the the bigger picture you know beyond what you can actually measure but i do think everything it's got to be a proxy for money in one way or another yeah it's um it's, it is interesting. Are you familiar uh, with Goodhart's law? So, you know, that sort of pretty famous statement, you know, when a measure becomes a target, it ceases to be a good measure. And I think that's a little bit of the crux of what we're talking about here is that what is incentivizing your optimization? Is it literally conversion rate? Is it revenue? Is it average order value? And I think you do have a good point, Oliver, in the sense that you, when you constrain your tests to a single metric and you don't see the full context, of that experience and what customers are actually thinking and, and acting upon, then you do end up with those really annoying Twitter notifications, right? <laughs> you know, that's kind of where it ends. And uh, what I do find fascinating is that experimentation, I, I kind of agree that it does lead, has to lead to some kind of business value. Even if it's, you know, delivering really great experiences, you know, to maintain the brand and all that kind of thing, understanding how you use behave on certain things. You know, all of that drives learning that and eventually should lead to business value. But do scientists do that? Like, what do you guys think? Do scientists, like, there's a different incentive in the academic world. You know, if you're running an experiment on, say, a population, say, sociology, what's your outcome there? The outcome is not revenue, perhaps. Maybe in the grand scheme of things, it's to deliver more papers and improve the, you know, the overall reputation of the university that they're working with. But the scientific world is un truly understand, right? The pursuit of science is understanding the world. It's understanding reality. And for businesses, and I've been thinking about this a lot, I'd love you guys to give me some thoughts on this, is that experimentation is a really good proxy for reality. Like, okay, so our, we think our customers will really like this thing, this new product or this new service. Is that real? Or are we just imagining that? And I've talked to a lot of business leaders and there's a lot of imagination going on. So it is a bit of a reality test, but, but what do you think? Do you think that experimentation should play as like that academic role? I know that companies like Spotify have user researchers and it is very academic. They'll write papers, they'll do a bunch of research into their users and there's no real correlation into, you know, directly into revenue. I mean, personally, I think you take that type of methodology that is born from the science world and you put it in a commercial environment and it, it, it's obviously going to, it's obviously going to skew it in some form. And again, I come back to the fact that it's almost over-prioritizing revenue, or at least over a period of time, you know, again, thank you to the, to the optimized leads and the, the witch test ones and what have you, that, that the educated route that we've, we've trodden down has led us to 
almost diminish experimentation into, I'm going to say nothing for revenue. So I, I don't know. I personally, I feel as though, although it was born from science, we placed it in a commercial world. We molded it around bad case studies, tweaking shit on a piece of, on a page or a template or a layout. And it's, it's created this, well, how much money is that burger menu worth as opposed to just saying the word menu, you know? So yeah, I, for me, I, I think it's been molded, uh, badly molded, you know, must I, must I add, but Ollie, you know, you're, you're from, I think you're more integrated in the science world than I am. What, what are your thoughts? Oh, I think it's, I, uh, I don't think I'm integrated with the science world at all, to be honest. I, I take your point. You know, I think it's, it is, it is a scientific methodology or it should be, you know, we, we are, um, yeah, we're, we're taking that from science, but I think largely the, the comparisons sort of, I think they end there, you know, science is, is ideally, you know, it's the, it's the pursuit of truth and I guess business is the pursuit of money. So they're very different things. So are you saying Oliver that, um, we shouldn't run a test if it has no clear, um, revenue, um, association with that? No, I think it depends. I think it depends what the business is doing, what the business is trying to achieve. I think, yeah, I mean, you certainly shouldn't be running tests for the sake of it. I retired a client a few years ago. It was a big Australian retailer who had a very, a very naive view of optimization. They came to me and they said, um, Hey, we have to hit X for our email signup targets this quarter. Uh, and it was a, it was a really lofty goal. So I said, right, let's get started. Um, you know, we will we'll try doing some really annoying stuff because we're going to put email signup boxes, you know, left, right and center. And we're going to try doing pop-ups and all sorts of other stuff. We will measure revenue and we'll see, you know, if they put people off in a way that is detrimental, but we're going to try to very aggressively, um, harvest email addresses. Their take on this was not, let's try the things that we think most obviously will work but they almost had an academic approach to it to say, well, let's, what if we tried a sign up box in the footer? What if we tried a small sign up box or a big sign up box? And it's like, guys, the idea is not to try every possible thing in the world and see if something smaller works, something better than something that's bigger and have 30 different variants. We've got a finite amount of traffic, a finite amount of, you know, creative resource development resource. We've got to try our best shot at what we think is going to get us over the line. And we have this wonderful opportunity with AB testing to actually measure that against reality. So we've got to do that. You know, I feel very strongly that it's not optimization shouldn't be an academic exercise. It can be, but it, you know, it should be the pursuit of business objectives. Completely agree. I, I personally believe that optimization is actually overly academic to too theoretical in some places, most places. It's interesting that you mentioned about the signups being KPIs. I think on this might answer your question uh, as well. There's a chap called Duncan Wardle who I like to follow. Um, he was the ex head of creativity and innovation at Disney. Now for me, that's the dream job title, you know, but, uh, <laughs> cause for those of you who don't know, I'm a big, big, big kid for one, but big Disney fan for two. I love being creative for three. But he talks about how all businesses come to him and like ask exactly the same thing now that he's an independent consultant. And that is, how can we be more creative? And what they really mean to say is, how can we make more money? 
you know, there's this desirable attitude of wanting to be more creative, but really, unless it hits quarterly targets, they don't care. You know, I, what, what permission do you have from your, from your senior stakeholders? What do your stakeholders really want? Is it to be more creative or is it really to make sure you hit those revenue targets? And to your point earlier, I just generally believe that if you place a scientific methodology into a commercial environment with commercial pressures, you're going to get an output that is overly commercialized. Yeah. And it, there is like, look, every company tends to morph different disciplines into their own, right? You know, and I, I completely agree with you, David, that even the creative industries, right? Like you work in, even if you work in an ad agency, you know, you have to mold yourself into that world with your creative skills. It's just the reality of, yeah, look, businesses are there to, yeah. to create value for the shareholders and for their, you know, to keep people employed, of course, you know, keeps me employed, <laughs> you know? And so I, I, what I do really, um, appreciate though, for all the ills of Facebook, um, and you know, they're a company that we, I think we can all agree has created significant value for themselves. They just hit a trillion dollar market cap. The rest of the world they, be damned. Well, the rest of the world be damned, you know, maybe that's Mark Zogworth's point of view, but they have enabled a lot of businesses to come online. And take that away from, take that component of, you know, privacy and disinformation and a lot of those things. Um, Mark Zuckerberg actually did a interview uh, for Y Combinator called um, Building the Future. And Zuckerberg was asked point blank, what is the purpose of testing experimentation in your business? And he explained it in a way that I actually thought was quite interesting. And it didn't, he didn't actually mention business results or outcomes or anything. What he said was that businesses, organizations, they're learning all the time. You have a team of people, a group of people, they're working towards objectives and they're always learning. They're always improving their job or proving how they do things. And he actually said experimentation testing is a way to facilitate learning at scale. That's the way he put it. So, you know, companies learn over time. You put stuff in the market or a campaign or whatever, and you get feedback. Your customers will tell you, you know, whether or not you did a good job. He said that giving experimentation power into every engineer gives the whole business the ability to learn at scale. We have, we have thousands, thousands of experiments all, all the time. I think he mentioned a stat like 10,000 experiments running on Facebook around the world at any point in time, you know? And so the scale of that is massive, but his perspective is that it helps the engineers learn and grow and understand what's the best way to refine their judgment, which again, Oliver, I don't think we can escape this, that all that funnels back into business value, right? You know, and there's a reason why Facebook is so addictive is because it's being optimized towards certain business objectives. But how do you guys think about this? So in the sense of experimentation playing a role in the learning life of an organization, do you guys talk about that? How do you guys do things like retros even, you know, like getting these learnings back and then talking about how they influence an organization or a business? Well, I, I mean, I think that's, that's an example of that's, that's really mature testing. You know, that's, that's where you want to be. Um, I have a, a client that I work with and have worked with for many years, who's a large Australian department store. And we ran a, a test that I, I often refer to um, now, because I think it's, it's a mark of really good mature testing that isn't directly attributed, that, that isn't directly chasing the dollar, but is using testing as a way of learning about customers and improving the business. So this was, it was March or sort of April last year. I think it was March. It was really, you know, when the world was melting around us and lockdowns were happening and everybody was very uncertain about what was happening with the pandemic and so on. 
And so it also coincided with Easter. <laughs> and so these guys are uh, a very traditional retailer. The way that they market to their customers has traditionally been through catalogs. And it's like clockwork. They know that um, they sell twice as many kids' pajamas in the June school holidays as they sell in the rest of the year. Or, you know, Mother's Day is, is a big thing, which correlates in certain products and so on. So it's every... Every year it is the same for them. And Easter is a huge part of their seasonal marketing. They run a massive Easter campaign. and uh, But there was a lot of talk within the business because it didn't really feel right to anyone to be talking about Easter when the, you know, the world was collapsing around us and everything felt very, very uncertain. So we ran a test in collaboration with the marketing team which in itself actually for those guys is fairly unusual with, with brand marketing, whereby we took the Easter homepage, they had a sort of Easter thing on, you know, they had a carousel, they had lots of Easter branding on it and uh, a couple of different tiles with other sort of, you know, I don't know, kids' pajamas and other things that sort of sell at that time of year. And we swapped them out and we ran this test where we replaced the Easter hero banner with, it was uh, aromatherapy oil diffusers and candles and stuff like that. And uh, it was, we went from Easter to the, the, the variant was something for that at Zen at home feeling. It was this sort of like wellness push that they had. And uh, the reason why we ran this test was to try and feel out how they would communicate with customers. They were sitting on millions of dollars of perishable Easter stock. So they were really nervous around abandoning Easter altogether, but didn't want to do something that would sort of strike an off note. What we found was, you know, I never base experiments on click through because who cares about clicks? But in this case, this is a way of just sort of putting a probe out there into the market and seeing what people felt. We got something insane click throughs on the wellness and diffusers Zen at home tile than we did on Easter. And that completely informed their strategy. You know, millions of catalogs that went out to houses all around Australia were suddenly not focused on Easter, but were focused on, on wellness. So I feel like that's a, it's a really prime example of using optimization to learn about customers and to improve customer experience. Yeah. But how much was it worth? <laughs> Millions. <laughs> well, and it's interesting because look, experimentation is about learning, validation, learning, full stop. Personally, I have a belief that the, the most successful way to do experimentation is to decentralize it. Because I think if you get your, if you get everybody thinking about, um, the methodology of experimentation, it always becomes a bit of a mindset. Oh, we should test this. Oh, that would be an interesting test, et cetera, et cetera. But you can start, if you decentralize it in the form of your customer services department, yeah, how can we, how can we start to experiment to reduce customer service wait times for reference? It's not saying things like, please press one for this, please press two for that, they're bloody annoying. And um, how do we, how, how do we get our logistics department to uh, start to experiment towards, I don't know, reducing time between picking and packing, for example. I think when you decentralize, it really promotes a culture and it starts to get people thinking about validation and learning as opposed to the outcome of, again, tweaking shits on the page. Uh, I think the issue with, like, I, I love the idea of that, David, but I, I, I guess I have the question, do you know of anyone that's 
taken that approach successfully, that's given their customer service agents, the agency, for lack of a yeah, better yeah. well, they do that. Sky talk about it a lot in the UK, now TV too, but do as well, but they're, they're part of Sky. I think it's, it's interesting that we always look at the booking.coms, the Facebooks, the Airbnbs, the Amazons, but let's be honest, 99% of us aren't those people. Uh, interestingly, I think a lot of those people actually are more rooted in tech, the marketing too. I think that shift in either commercial approach or mindset actually creates different purpose for experimentation at times. You think about all the people that do experimentation well or purport to doing it well, Uber, Facebook, Twitter, Microsoft, um, they are all, they're all tech companies. And I wonder if there's something where experimentation is rooted in engineering as opposed to marketing, whether there's, that affects the true purpose of experimentation or the, the, the purpose of it for that business anyways. Yeah, I would, I would agree with you. I mean, like if you do rattle off a list of, you know, leaders in experimentation, there's only a few that aren't exclusively tech companies. And even then you'd probably say they were tech, like for example, Nike, you know, very strong experimentation culture, but they're retail, yeah, but they're kind of a tech company as well. And so I, I agree that experimentation seems to be better utilized in an engineer's hand, you know, and when we're talking strictly about, you know, the science and the discipline of it, and then that you know, exploration of truth and understanding what's happening and motivated customers. Um, but marketing and digital, which is, you know, more sort of that customer edge, more so perhaps strategic even, you know, like looking at, okay, how are we going to meet our KPIs or quarterly goals? You know, it does change the motive, motivations, incentives. And so it's a really good insight. I think that the motivations, incentives of teams really determine what kind of experiments, like even looking at Facebook, I just finished reading The Ugly Truth, a fantastic book, highly recommend. It tracks the past 10 years of Facebook's growth. And if you look at someone like Mark Zuckerberg, like he's a product guy, he's an engineer and they've done so much experimentation in that space, but then they neglected the societal harms, you know, and the privacy implications of their work. You know, they would run these experiments, they turn on newsfeed and, you know, millions of people would complain about it. And then, you know, through experimentation. So actually people really do enjoy it. And so, you know, it really, I think experimentation can be a powerful force for improving your business and, and what you're doing for your customers, but are really so closely aligned with the incentives that you attach to that. You know, if you're looking to drive revenue, you're looking to drive engagement and nothing else, you know, I think that's where the trap is for a lot of companies. I actually love this quote, Dave, that you have in one of your articles. It says, people hire brand agencies from New York with double digit mm. branding and they don't care at all about ROI, right? You know, so massive branding agencies, they're spending millions of dollars, right? Whatever. Um, and they hire somebody like us to do A-B tests and they start discussing if the uplift is 3.1% or 3.2%. So I'd love for you to unpack that a little bit because all three of us, we have been on the other side where we're pitching experimentation services. And so how do you guys approach that? Like, how do you actually think about the incentives that you're putting in front of your uh, potential customers and your clients? It's interesting. That quote is from Andre, um, Andre Maurice, a uh, conversions craft. Really smart chap. Uh, for those of you who haven't seen his talks, really effervescent uh, person as well. And he starts talking about on the I was on the phone with him in one of these interviews that I did years and years ago. I'll just never forget it. He started going off on a big rant how, you know, Pepsi pay Beyonce like $10 billion to feature in the ad. 
or how Steve Jobs paid that famous designer dude to create his next logo. And that was 10 million pounds. And he created a hundred page document and one logo, you know, why, why don't you ask the ROI of these things? I think it's interesting because experimentation for me is a, is a mindset and a methodology, right? And if we take the methodology route, I, I can't quite get my head around the fact that we don't see ROI being demanded from agile methodology or a sprint methodology or an OKR methodology, you know, um, I, I found it fascinating. So I don't know, there's just that disconnect. I think it, it, it is what we said before. It's a scientific approach being placed into a commercial environment. And as a result, perhaps it's demanded that we have these, these revenue attributions. And like Ollie said before, you know, which test won this binary approach of this one and this lost rather than it, it is more complex now, obviously it's a, it's a spectrum of learnings. It attributes itself to a, yeah, it made more money or no, it didn't make more money. Um, there was a, there was a quote from, from one of the guys that I interviewed, uh, Matt Lacey, I think he's at code computer love. I'm not sure, but he, he speaks about, um, he said most of the time being accurate about the direction of the decision is more important than being precise about the exact nature of the outcome. And I thought that was really poignant, the difference between accuracy and precision. And interestingly, when I put all these articles up, everybody was talking about the word accurate. You know, can you be accurate with this? Should you be accurate with this? Rather than, are we just rowing in the right direction? You know, what is the estimate? What is the, the rough forecast? So I think that word accurate is really important. That, that, that makes me think, David, of a great blog post that somebody pointed me to earlier this year from one of your colleagues at Brain Labs, Will Critchlow, who yeah. works in, in A-B testing. And I think he's, he, um, well, he started an agency called Distilled that I think was bought by Brain Labs. And they work in this interesting space that I know nothing about at all, but fascinates me, which is A-B testing for SEO, where they, where they use CDNs and kind of split traffic to work out if you can measure the impact of those changes. But he published this, this post, which is called, it was sort of sent to me as, as being called, uh, we do business, not science. And, um, what that's taken from that post, it's, um, I've pulled it up here. It's seems to actually be called now how to make sense of SEO AB test results, which is a little bit less catchy, but the gist of what he said there, and this was taken from some internal documentation is he says, we can summarize this as follows. We are here to help our customers capture any competitive benefit available, statistically significant or not, default to deploy. Okay. <laughs> just say I'd leave that there to see what you guys think about that. I wondered why you paused. I'm yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, it's, I think it's really interesting. You know, oftentimes we can, we can, I've got tests live now that I'm waiting to put a couple of million more users through so I can hit, uh, you know, 90 plus percent significance for a, a small revenue uplift. Um, but, uh, you know, I thought this was, this was really compelling because oftentimes yeah. when you look at the way that these, these significance algorithms operate, they're so conservative. You can really have clearly have a winner on your hands, but you're just pumping more and more users through until eventually it ticks over and you get, get to the right outcome. Sometimes when it's very small uplifts, you know, you, you may not get there at all. You may say, well, this looked like it was going to do an extra half a percent revenue, which, you know, for, for big enterprise clients is big, big money. 
So I thought that was, that was really interesting, this idea of defaulting to deploy and just stacking up those incremental benefits and saying, look, we're not, we're not in the business of science. We're not trying to do this a hundred percent definitively. We just want to do good stuff. That's not bad, which again is, is, I think is the other thing that I think is not, um, discussed enough in optimization. You know, it's, it's, it's not really about those like crazy big wedding moments. It's often about the just like, was this bad? No. Well, that's good. You know, you didn't do anything stupid. Well, I, 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 I agree. I think time is really, really important. And this prioritization, I, I want to give a shout out first of all, to Will, the company that you talked about is search pilot. Um, and second of all, to, uh, Tim Stewart, cause he, he kind of dovetailed off what Matt Lacey was saying. And he basically says it's a mathematical exercise. You know, my argument is if we're trying to get to a one-to-one perfect match attribution or in your case, statistical significance, then one, that's a lot of time and money that you'll spend to check how accurate it was. And number two, in, in essence, you're kind of negatively impacting the ROI. Yes. You know, but there's, there's an exponential curve to be that much more sure. Uh, so yeah, I, I think this accuracy versus precision question is one that, that should be unpacked more. And we are, we are coming out of a lot of innovation in those attribution measurement technologies as well. I am seeing across the industry, we've enjoyed 25 years of, um, analytics obsession in marketing specifically where marketing used to be a lot more religion, um, on science, a lot of things like that's why brand agencies can't really get a ROI out of them because you don't know. You know what I mean? There's no direct attribution for a lot of the work. Like, of course, there's new technologies coming out these days that can show things like, you know, out of home and, you know, how many people walking past and people in retail stores and stuff like that. But overall, I don't know, like marketers have always been putting their finger in the air and going, mm, we think this is going to work, you know, and then maybe it does. Like it's no, no clear line of attribution, but then digital marketing came along and the internet came along and then you can track everyone with cookie and then you can create a profile of that customer and then you can see how they clicked off an email and then you can measure their conversion rate. And then Google analytics came along. There was a free tool that anybody in the world can use, you know, it takes only a couple minutes just to set it up. And we've created this environment where every, every marketer, every person digital, so analytics obsessed, measurement obsessed. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm saying that the industry is shifting towards more privacy. So if you look over this past six months alone, you know, you look at Google's retiring um, cookies, they've delayed it, but they're coming to, of course, delay, remove cookies completely. Apple and, and Firefox have already done that. Apple's sh shutting down tracking for a lot of things in apps. You know, you have a lot of companies coming out and saying, we're not using certain tools anymore because it invades our customers' privacy. I saw a company, one of our clients saying that we, they literally brand themselves. We respect and manage gently your data, you know? And so this whole, and of course there's this huge shift from analytics obsessed, measurement obsessed to actually, maybe we shouldn't know these things, you know? and I just find that fascinating. I would be totally surprised in the next five, 10 years. And a lot of the ways in which we do measurement today will be severely regulated. It'd be very hard to do in the way we do it today. In the same way, if you look past 10, past 10 years, 10 years ago, AB testing was like the wild, wild west. You could do almost anything, you know, it was incredible. Uh, I see that, that we're shutting, a lot of the industry is shutting down how we track customers, users and whatnot. 
You don't think that's a good thing, though? I, I think it forces us to innovate. I would, I would say that going back to the attribution for hiring a brand marketing agency versus attribution for hiring an optimization agency, I'd say they're very different things in as much as brand marketing doesn't purport to be able to do measurement and attribution. The whole narrative around A-B testing and optimization is measurement and attribution. So I don't think it's unfair for clients to, to ask what sort of, you know, attributed revenue they're getting from experimentation. Cause coming back to my point earlier, that's the way it's been sold in, you know, that's the dominant narrative. Well, I actually, uh, I think that's the thing It's it's how, how you change that narrative. And I, th I think it's bloody difficult for one, <laughs> but I, I think there are certain strategies and tactics that you can employ to over time, change that narrative away from being a revenue. I've seen it. We've yeah. done it. Yeah, so have I. That's I think that's our job, right? We're we're taking clients by the hand and and leading them toward where they can actually see the true benefit of A/B testing, which is such a like it's such a magical idea that you can try lots of things and measure which one works and not do the dumb ones and do the smart ones. It's so much more powerful than the, you know, the, the, the really frankly quite cheap way that it's been sold in on, you know, changing a small thing and getting a big result. It's once you can grasp the, 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 you know, truly magnificent nature of the whole thing, so much more powerful. <laughs> Sounds like a, a good landing page headline, Oliver, leading companies to the promised land of AB testing. <laughs> I literally, I, I feel one, like I've had this, there's a, um, I, I really struggle to express, um, uh, I really struggle to express myself in terms of just how powerful I think optimization is. I think it's very easy to be blase about it, but I often think in life, you know, imagine if we could, if we weren't wedded to a single choice, if we could try 30 different things and the fact that we can, that we can do that in our websites and digital products, it still blows me away, you know? Yeah, it, it is. Um, we, I don't think like, sometimes I think a lot of people are heads down in the tech, in the minutiae of the day to day and all the details of everything. But yeah, I completely agree. Like we are living in this period where brands, companies have never understand their customers more. And I think a lot of that actually comes from A-B testing and experimentation, right? Like customers have never been so data rich and the best ones are making sense of that data and turning that into intelligence and turning that into strategies, tactics. And, you know, I think that example that you gave of um, that retail business at Easter time is really rich because it's not just... It's not just, did that test win or lose? Did that test add more, um, add to carts? It was about, oh, wow, we're living in this COVID period and it's completely changed how our customers think. And we've learned some, we've gained some insight about them that we can use in our business strategy. And I'm sure that led to a lot of value as well. But Dave, I want to pick on you just a little bit for a minute because, and I want to question something actually, because in, in one of your articles that talks specifically about revenue attribution, forecasting, and things like that. You said mm -hmm. that we should, you don't believe that we should attribute revenue to individual experiments, but you said that we have to. And I want to know why that is. Why do we have to do that? Is it some sort of reason behind that or is it because of the nature of the industry? What are your thoughts? I, I mean, it is what Ollie said before. I think that it is the, the dominant narrative that's out there is about revenue attribution and therefore 
that is, you know, I'll hold my hands up. Probably the biggest reason, the sole dominant reason why most companies hire us over at Brain Labs, for example. So it should be. We live in a commercial world and a commercial environment, similar to what we mentioned before. I, I think that if you talk to a CFO about the academic best practices of experimentation, the, per the true purpose of it and where it originated from, I don't think he's going to give a shit. You know, he, he cares about numbers on the spreadsheet, ultimately. That's, that's his narrative. That's his, his defining purpose to be there at that, at that company. So for me, it is purely the fact that we are in a commercial environment. So we do have to. Uh, we do have to attribute experimentation in some form, uh, either A, to keep our jobs or, or B, rather selfishly to sell our products or C, um, to get others on board. I think you mentioned it earlier, Oliver, but it's still quite an, I wouldn't say new, but an immature practice for sure. Therefore, to at least open the door to welcome people into this world, I think we need to have something that's compelling enough for them to, you know, turn that, turn that door handle. And for me, the best way of doing that from, from experience is, is just, is talking about the commercial, commercial reasons of doing it. Um, it's really interesting. I don't know how you feel Oliver, right? But one of, one of the, um, one of the main benefits that I find within the experimentation is that of risk, you know, you're reducing your risk, you're reducing your chance of the quote unquote failure. And there's like a psychological bias around that, isn't there? I forgot the, the exact nature of it, but if I was to give you a pound and take away and ask, would you like another 50p or should I take away 50p? You know, you've got this fear of loss aversion. And I just find that that narrative of reducing risk of loss aversion of fear of failure just does not work anywhere near as well as the possibility of gain, you know, the potential gain within the industry. What, what, what do you think? It's interesting. Yeah, I've, I've thought about this a lot as well. And I wonder if it relates to sort of individual incentives rather than sort of organizational incentives. I think we probably, we, we have a version to our own personal loss. But I think if you look in a business and if you look at the sorts of people that are, you know, spinning up optimization programs or engages, engaging agencies to help with the same, they're doing so with a growth mindset because they, you know, incentivize, incentivize to hit sort of, you know, X target. They're not necessarily, you know, no one wants to do anything bad in particular, but that's, that's not the nature of their incentives. They're, they're focused on what they can do that's good rather than, uh, what they can not do that's bad, for instance. So, so yeah, I just wonder if it's, you know, that sort of versus, you know, spending or losing your own money versus spending or losing the money of a company. I wonder if we, if we react differently in those sort of circumstances. I think that there's a few ways in which I think the attitude may change. So I think there could be a generational aspect to this as well. So David, you know, uh, a lot of CFOs, you know, the generation before us, right? And I think there is a generational thing where A-B testing experimentation is so nascent and new, but there is so much education. One of the quickest ways to educate someone is like, hey, we did this test and, you know, it drove X amount of millions of dollars of revenue. So that's a really easy story to tell. It's a very compelling story to tell in a, an environment where there's a lot of unknowns and people tend to be a little bit, um, you know, risk averse when it comes to new technologies and particular things that I think touch customers and, and their business so directly. And so I think there's a generational aspect to that, which happen uh, over time. I also think that 
the cost to do experimentation is another factor at play here as well. So, you know, A-B testing platforms are getting cheaper and cheaper. You know, they used to be quite expensive. Now, like it, it depends on where you go. Optimizer is, you know, one example here compared to something like a Google Optimize, you know. So there's a lot of different tools out there now for web and for apps that you can you can pick up and it's getting cheaper. And to stand up an experimentation program, it does require expertise. It requires developers and designers and um, people actually do the strategy work and the analysis. And so all of those things are really expensive to, you know, bums on seats, hires to do. But if the costs go down, then it actually, that idea of ROI, return on investment, that may actually become less of a strong uh, sticking point, I think. Uh, it might actually become a little bit more about the narrative of learning about your customers. And, you know, um, I think that the storytelling around what we've heard today um, is really powerful in that, you know, understanding your customers leads to better decisions and, and better judgment. It's like all about revenue and outcomes. But there's a couple of things I think that may may influence how people think about it in the future. But I want your take. I'd love a, a soundbite or a snapshot of where you think when we get to 2030, and hopefully we're all still working in this industry by then, it hasn't been completely shut down, that, yeah, well, what do you think 2030 will look like when it comes to A-B testing and CRO? Who wants to go first? Go on, Ali. <laughs> I'm waiting for you, David. <laughs> I've, I've, I've said too much. I've spoken too much this meeting. Uh, uh, go on, you go get you get in trouble first, and then I'll get. In trouble. <laughs> I, I just I just draw a blank. I don't know. I feel like uh, I don't think it's. I don't think um, the death of the cookie will be the end of the death of optimization. Um, I don't think there's going to be anything remarkably. You know, I think about. I've been working in this field for about. 10 years and I think about, you know, where we were 10 years ago, I don't see it as being markedly different. I think things have just slowly and incrementally got better. And in 2030, I expect that we'll see much of the same thing. I think there'll be a lot more awareness of the importance of experimentation. I think we'll see it as being, you know, a lot more of a, a sort of a, you know, we spoke earlier about trailing in the, the wake of SEO. It wasn't very long ago that everybody outsourced all of their SEO. Now we see, you know, almost every big company has an internal SEO team and they understand the value of that and that they've made that, you know, one of their internal competencies. We are starting to see more and more of that in CRO. And I expect that in 10 years time that that will be more or less the, the default position for businesses of a certain scale. There's any really nice politically correct answer um <laughs> give us the give it yeah give us the uh, give us the fun response david i get in trouble so much honestly so i think the death of the cookie like i said before i think it will force us to be more innovative i'm looking forward to it and um, i think we need to unpack experimentation and conversion optimization because they're not one and the same for me i've always described as conversion optimization as a mindset you know, it's a little bit like growth, for example, that is a mindset, it's not a thing. Whereas experimentation, ironically, as well as being a mindset, we need to experiment this in creating a culture. It is more of a methodology. That's where it's born from. And when it comes to experimentation, I generally think it will mature. You know, I think I would like to hope it will go more into the engineering uh, side of the business. I hope that we'll start to um, validate more as we look, look, you know, ahead of us and up to the, the Facebooks and the Ubers and the Microsofts of the world. I hope that it will become more decentralized. But let me just focus on optimization for just one second. Because whereas I think 
experimentation will mature, I actually think optimization won't. So optimization for me is a mindset. It is like saying the same as growth. We're optimizing this thing. Well, bloody hell, well, hope we are. And currently more and more companies, I feel are decentralizing optimization away from individuals or away from teams like CRO managers and CRO execs, because they're morphing more and more into product teams, you know, and the success of that structure is, is, is really influential. So what does a CRO team look like? It's an analyst, a UX designer, UX researcher, and engineer. What's the purpose of a CRO manager to gl the glue to hold it together, perhaps, but I think that's the job of a product owner. And I see a lot of CRO as moving into product for that very reason. So I don't actually believe that CRO internal CRO teams will exist, but ironically, I do think there'll always be the need for external CRO support agencies, SAS, because externalized central centralized CRO is necessary to mature. So the short answer to your question is, I think experimentation will certainly mature. I think CRO will morph into, into product or morph into kind of a br even broader mindset, such as product optimization or just the word optimization. That was quite thoughtful. I thought you were going to talk trash, trash on the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, <laughs> no, I don't know. I, I feel as though, um, I don't know. I, I feel like, like I'm an old man and a cynic. I thought that was trash talking. I can <laughs> you shouldn't be an individual CRO manager in an agency. You're alone in a, in a company, you're a lonely Island and you're not going to impact anything. There you go. Oh, that's good. Um, I just, just to weigh in on that though, I like, I, I'm inclined to agree. I mean, I think I, I hope that product will product will develop those skills. So much of my work is and has been working with product managers you know, and I think they are the best stakeholder to work with really in, in CRO and, you know, helping them gain the skills and sort of understand the discipline of experimentation. But I, I concur, they are, they are absolutely the most well-positioned people within a business to be optimizing and running experiments. Do you think I could go to, to a university, let's say I'll go to Harvard and I can get a bachelor's degree in CRO one day? I don't think so, but there was, I mean, you probably saw there was the a recent post on the Harvard Business Review that was, that was called something like, you know, why isn't experimentation taught at business school? And really, you know, in, 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 you know, it's Harvard Business Hub Business Review writing that, but really saying that that is a, that's a gap. And I'm sure you guys see this as well. It's a huge gap. It's almost like the more senior person you're dealing with at a business, like the less they get it, you know, the more immature their view on experimentation is. So I, I'd love to see those, love to see experimentation as a discipline, even at a very high level being taught, you know, in MBAs around the world. I think that would be wonderful. Can you imagine MBAs, a room full of hundred MBAs running experiments on a practice website? They're just seeing <laughs> their testament. That would be very funny. But before we uh, wrap up, I'm not going to let you guys go without a war story. You guys have been working in space for ages, been running, I'm sure by now, heaps, heaps of tests. What has been one test that has spectacularly failed, but also changed your perspective on something? Maybe you have an idea, maybe you have a short story to tell, but I am curious. Have something massively failed for you guys before a test and what, what happened? I'm an old man and I, <laughs> I think my, my memory is so poor. 
So I'm actually not going to talk about a test, but I'll talk about a process. I'll explain a little bit of a story about what we did at user conversion once. We introduced and matured away from, I forgot what we used, maybe Trello, uh, into Airtable as a, uh, as a, like a, a process tool for all of our clients, you know, not only how to prioritize in the backlog of experiments, but also prioritizing the backlog of insights, having a repository of insights, so on and so forth. And okay, I effectively forced it through for a subset of clients. But I, I thought it was the best thing since sliced bread. And we iterated on it. Do you know what we I, you know what we found? We found that the feedback from clients was lackluster, it was complex, even though you could create all these beautiful different views that really uh, resonated with the individual. But the reason why it failed, we found, is that because we designed Airtable for the purpose of clients, clients weren't using it. It was the internal team that used a conversion that were using it. Um, so it was so well constructed for the client and not so for the teams. Once we actually flipped that and made it really uh, useful for the teams, A, again, traction and, and B, excitement. And, um, I mean, we ended up migrated away from that as well, but, um, but I thought it was really interesting that we tested it, um, for a subset of clients, it did fail. The realization was that we, our priorities were wrong. You know, it was all for our teams and not necessarily for the client. I think it's so interesting, David. You know, I I feel like having a repository of user research is such a holy grail for so many teams. You know, all every client that I've worked with pretty much ever has been talking about a way of doing that. You know, whether it's chucking it in Evernote years ago or, you know, Notion or Trello or Airtable or whatever. Uh, or, you know, using custom built tools that are starting to crop up now, everyone's trying to do this same thing and I've never seen anyone do it effectively. And I only sort of came to understand, well, clarify my feelings on, on why that's the case recently. And my feeling is very much that user research should actually be disposable. And I think it is disposable. You know, when you, user research is great when you're doing it, when you're trying to um, solve the, the particular problem that you're working on. But I hate reading through other people's research. It's, I find it so boring and it's never applicable exactly to the actual thing that I'm working on. Um, I, I wonder what do you guys think about that? But I've very much come to the opinion that user research shouldn't be extensively documented, shared, whatever. You should use it to inform whatever you're working on, chuck it away and move on, um, lest you create a database of semi-apocryphal learnings from, you know, Christmas has passed. Uh, I think it should be digestible and memoed personally. And it, you know, you're talking to someone who, who was coming from an agency that therefore almost had to create a framework that managed multiple clients. So I, I feel it is different being, being in-house than being out of house. But for us, it, it did work quite well being digestible and being memoed and tagged based on behaviors for reference, behaviors and attitudes, less so templates oh on this pdp we found this i mean yes that is boring and it's generic and disposable i'm actually curious that it worked well for us i don't know whether it worked well for the clients you know they certainly said oh that's really interesting did they do anything with that information i couldn't tell you then unfortunately 
So I, I think there's, there's two sides of the coin, an agency and an in-house. I know I mean, conversion rate experts talk about having their sort of playbook of all of their research and all of their tests and things that have won and failed before that they use that sort of feed into everything that they do. And I've always sort of wondered, is that, is that more talk than it is action? But I guess if you can pull that off, it's, it's a, it's a good resource to have, but I've, I've certainly never seen it in action. And they, and they do go stale as well, right? Like I, I kind of agree with you that insights today might be different in a different season. So like some, mm-hmm. you know, and so you do have to, I think Davey, a good point there, memoing things really well, also showing which context it was in, what season of the year, the other things happening in the business as well. I think that really helps strengthen insights because yeah, I've seen a few examples where we pick something up. It wasn't the right season in the business. The insight didn't work because yeah, we, we picked the wrong one in the wrong period of time, but yeah, that's a really good insight, but Oliver, I'm not going to let you go without a fun story. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I love telling CRO war stories. Uh, I've got heaps of them. Um, yeah, I mean, failure, failure, failure. Um, I love failure, you know, and, and probably what for a long time I didn't, I think in the, you know, in the early days and I was running experiments, I would get very caught up in the outcome of the experiment. And oftentimes, uh, you know, I, I was invested, I was invested in what happened because it was almost like, oh, here's my brilliant idea made to life and I can measure just how clever I am. And so when it fails, it's obviously, it's very, very disheartening. And I feel like that's something that almost every optimizer has got to, got to, got to go through that and get over it and stop being attached to the outcome of the tests and start getting attached to, to truth. And for me, that moment happened many years ago. I was working for a, a telco in the UK and I was scouring the chat logs one day. They used live agent, um, chat, um, sort of really at the end of the, at the end of the checkout, um, process, I think it was sort of on the payment page and I was trying to get a sense as to what the objections were at the end of the payment process. And this one thing cropped up again and again and again and again and again, almost every query on that page said, can I keep my existing phone number? And I was like, wow, this is great. This is like, this is a multi-million pound test. You know, we can just make up a little panel that says keeping your existing phone number is easy, blah, 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 blah. And we ran that test and conversion just dived like 15% or something consistently. And we ran it for like two weeks. Conversion was down 15%. We were so baffled by this. We ran an AA test to check that the tool was calibrated and then tried again. Same thing happened. You know, we looked at these numbers every which way. And this thing that we thought was brilliant was actually very, very bad. And I remember sort of presenting the results of this experiment, um, in a, in a session with a, you know, a bunch of senior stakeholders and this one guy in the business who was, you know, pretty, pretty high up sort of looked at, showed the genesis of the test. I was taking everyone along for the journey and said, I found this in the chat logs. And then I, uh, you know, we've built up this panel and he goes, why wasn't that for on the site for a hundred percent of the, um, you know, of the audience yesterday, sort of, you know, pointing his finger up at the projector screen and uh, basically being a bit of a dick. And I sort of, at that moment, I, I realized it was, you know, I kind of had the realization apart, it stopped being disheartened by the fact that we tried something, um, 
and it had failed and I couldn't really work out why, to sort of shifting the narrative on that from, you know, once upon a time, a product manager or somebody would have undoubtedly seen those chat logs. They would have had that insight. They would have made that panel. They would have put it on the website. Conversion would have dropped by like 15%. They would absolutely never have attributed it to that change. They would have thought it was something else. There's no way they would have unpicked it and found that thing. So that's when I really became comfortable with the concept that optimization is, you know, as much about doing smart things as not doing dumb things. That says your soundbite. <laughs> yep. Hi, David. But I just want to thank you both. This has been a very honest and very helpful conversation. I think talking about the state of experimentation. So thank you both for uh, giving me your brains and your insights for an hour and a bit. But I would like to know where we can find you on the internet and read some of this great work that you've been doing. Yeah, just, just LinkedIn. <laughs> Not exactly everywhere. Just, yeah. I, I post almost a, I have a sub stack and a medium account and stuff, but everything goes through LinkedIn for me. Um, I'm a bit of a, a LinkedIn warrior. You the same? No, I'm not, I'm not on, I'm barely, barely on LinkedIn at all. Juan is the biggest LinkedIn user I know. How many times a day do you post on LinkedIn, Juan? Oh, look. At the moment, like once a day, but I usually take the conversations that I think about and I just put it into LinkedIn and Twitter and, um, see what people think. So it's more just a stream of consciousness to be made. So it's not a lot of staggeringly awesome content. It's just my brain working through the day. I love it. We must have, the algorithms clearly latched on that I, I like your stuff because I, it's uh, LinkedIn foregrounds view, I think a lot for me. Um, Thank you very much for having me on, Juan. You can find uh, me at oliverpalmer.com. Um, it's where I, where I tend to put stuff periodically. You've got a website. You're so professional. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I mean, we've got Optimizely installed on it somewhere. At the end. Oliverpalmer.com. You trusty, trusty wiper lies off. Dude, you've got segment and heat and everything. It's because I'm, it's because I'm, because I'm a partner. So I get the, I get the free playground tools. <laughs> uh, yeah. Chuck it on my hand site. Uh, slows everything down immensely. <laughs> uh, I highly recommend you check uh, these two guys out around everything to do with experimentation or CRO optimization. Um, they're pumping out awesome work all the time and really great leaders in the space. And so, and I know David, you don't like me saying that, but I do think you're a leader. You have a very good voice in this uh, space and you are very influential, I think. But I would like to thank you both. Thanks heaps, Juan. And uh, I've just looked it up, optimization.substack.com. That's how you get to David, right in your inbox. Oh, you silly boy. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks guys. Bye-bye. Thank you very much. Bye.